Well, hopefully you feel somewhere between very happy that you're a Christian or very sad about the week that's in. I don't know. But I do appreciate starting with a song that helps center us back around uh, the cross and the finished work of Jesus, especially because that's where we've been for the prior three weeks, and that's where we're going to be tonight and then for the next three weeks as we head in to celebrate Easter. And so we've been looking at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, and we looked at the word of affection, and we looked at the word of anguish and then last week we looked at the word of contentment and now this week we're going to look at the word of suffering from Jesus on the cross and so as we look at these seven different times that Jesus speaks on the cross we do so to have our hearts and our minds encouraged to understand fully what it was that Christ was accomplishing and then what we've done in the previous three weeks what we're going to do tonight and what we're going to do over the next three weeks in each instance it's kind of hard to build a sermon off of a single verse. But in that, in working through understanding what Jesus is saying, we're try, I'm trying to fashion each sermon so that you hear a challenge from Christ's words and you also hear a call to see Christ in a new, maybe a new way or refresh your memory or your heart in a way to view Christ. And so that's what we're going to do tonight as we look at Christ's word of suffering. If you've got your Bibles or your phones and you're not going to be checking March Madness scores, Scout's Honor, you can uh, either turn them on or open your Bibles and go to John chapter 19, uh, verse 28. That's where we're going to be tonight. If Carolina was playing, I would give you full permission, but they got beat like a drum Friday, so I'm preaching with no concern about what's happening other, other places. Joni Erickson Tatum, some of you may know who she is, but she was confined to a wheelchair as a quadriplegic after a diving accident in 1967. And since then, she has used her life and her voice, bound in a wheelchair though she is, and her ministry called Joni and Friends, to offer help and hope for families impacted by disability. And her perspective on suffering and how to suffer well is unique and profound because of how her life has unfolded and because of her honesty in her writing about the times especially when she was first diagnosed with quadriplegia she talks about in her autobiography she talks about laying in the hospital bed and thrashing her head hard enough to try to finish breaking it so that she would be completely released from her suffering so this is not someone that when you read her later writings or we're going to read an excerpt from an interview with her It's not somebody who just embraced suffering with no questions or no whys or no anger or no bitterness or no desire to just be escaped from it. She wrestled with it. She wrestled with all of the pain and the agony of suffering. And then by God's grace, that suffering was turned into an avenue where untold numbers of people have either benefited from the work of her ministry or received comfort and encouragement from the words that she has spoken. And in 2011, she did an interview with Ligonier Ministries, and they asked her what scriptures have given her encouragement during her struggles with her disability. And then in 2011, and then even in the past month, she's had a recurrence. In 2011, she had recently been diagnosed with breast cancer, and in the past month or so, that has come back, I believe, for a third time now. But in 2011, when asked what scriptures had given her encouragement, she responded with this. Another anchor is Deuteronomy 31.6, where God tells me, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified of quadriplegia, chronic pain, or cancer, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm convinced a believer can endure any amount of suffering as long as he's convinced that God is with him in it. 
And we have the man of sorrows, the most God-forsaken man who ever lived, so that in turn, he might say to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God wrote the book on suffering, and he called it Jesus. This means God understands. He knows he's with me. Joni Erickson Tata's answer sheds light on where we are headed today. Our challenge is to is that we need to know the scriptures as the anchor for our soul when we suffer. And the second thing we need is to see Jesus as the one who has suffered as one fully human, and therefore he can sympathize with us in our sufferings. Let's pray. Jesus, we come tonight to worship you because of the work that you've done for us in living and dying and rising again and ascending and in promising to return one day to claim your bride. And Father, in your living and in your dying and in your resurrecting and in the in-between, between your going to heaven and then returning from heaven, we still live in a world fraught with pain and suffering and difficulty, filled with tears that we can't count, full of heartache, full of questions, full of what seems like random and untimely losses of family and friends to sudden death or to devastating diagnosis. And so, Father, we don't come tonight hiding from those things. We come in the full acknowledgement of them. But we come acknowledging that you've given us your word to know, to provide an anchor for our souls, to give us a theological spine of steel that would be able to stand up under the weight of the suffering that comes our way. And we come knowing that you sent your son, the word, to live and to experience suffering as one who was fully man and fully God so that we could come to him in our sufferings and not have a cold, calculating God give us a formula for how to overcome, but we would have a Savior who would enter into our sufferings with us. Will we see that tonight? Would it bring deep encouragement to our hearts? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. John records in John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, meaning all that was needed to be done for the price of our redemption, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Here is a catalog of everything that had to be fulfilled according to scripture regarding Christ's death. The betrayal of a familiar friend fulfilled Psalm 41, 9. The forsaking of the disciples through being offended at him fulfilled Psalm 31, 11. The false accusations against him fulfilled Psalm 35, 11. The silence before his judges fulfilled Isaiah 53, 7. The being proven guiltless fulfilled Isaiah 53, 9. The numbering of him with transgressors fulfilled Isaiah 53, 12. The being crucified fulfilled Psalm 22, 16. The mockery of the spectators fulfilled Psalm 109, 25. The taunt of non-deliverance fulfilled Psalm 22, 7 through 8. The gambling for his garments fulfilled Psalm 22, 18. The prayer for his enemies fulfilled Isaiah 53, 12. The being forsaken of God fulfilled Psalm 22, 1. The thirsting fulfilled Psalm 69, 21. The yielding of his spirit into the hands of the Father fulfilled Psalm 31, 5. The bones of Jesus not being broken fulfilled Psalm 34, 20. And the burial in a rich man's tomb fulfilled Isaiah 53, 9. This list doesn't even take into account all that was said and prophesied in the Old Testament about the birth and the life 
of Jesus. So it is that the scriptures well in advance of Christ's life and death foretold what would happen to the suffering servant, the Savior, our Redeemer. It was the scriptures as God handed them down in the Old Testament that provided the framework for how we understand the life and the ministry and the death of Jesus. And John says in this moment that Christ knew that everything was complete, meaning Christ in his mind was able to run through that catalog of scripture that I just went through with you. And up until that point, the only thing lacking from his death on the cross was to say, I thirst. Which seems insignificant, but if one prophecy concerning Jesus is left out, then he's not the one we're looking for. If one small utterance doesn't happen in the way that it was foretold in scriptures, then we are, as Paul says, to be pitied because we've got no hope of a life to come. And so it's not insignificant that Jesus says, I thirst. It's necessary that he says it. And maybe we would say, well, he's done all this other stuff. What's the big deal about letting this one little insignificant scripture just kind of slide under the nose of everyone? Nobody, I would not know. If Jesus doesn't say, I thirst, that he needed to say, I thirst, for us to have a full picture of who he was as our Savior. But he did. And so he says, I thirst, as a fulfillment of the prophecies concerning his death. And here is where we find the challenge of Christ's word of suffering for us today. And it's simply this. Do we know, love, and submit to the scriptures in all of life, and especially in our sufferings? I thirst is the cry of suffering from one who is fully God and fully man. I thirst is Christ's commitment to fulfilling the smallest requirement of the previous prophecies concerning him so that we could have full faith and trust in him as our Savior and as our Messiah. But if we step back and we just look at the totality of Jesus' life on earth, we see that he didn't stumble into knowing the scriptures in his hour of greatest need. We don't have a picture from scripture that Jesus just recalled, just recalled verses with no work on his part because he was fully God, but he was also fully man. And so there was a sense in where he had to learn the same way that we learn. He had to read. He had to memorize. He had to work through the process of being a boy who grew into a man who could read and understand the scriptures. But a love for, a desire for, and a growing knowledge of the word marked his life. If you go back and read Luke 2, 41 through 52, he used the scriptures to overcome the temptation of Satan in the wilderness, according to Luke 4, 1 through 13. He was always living in submission to them from his own words in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. He also taught the full meaning of the law. If you look at Matthew 5, 21 through 48, he reasoned with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees from scripture by asking them repeatedly if they had read. He does it in Matthew 12, 3 and 12, 5 and 19, 4 and 22, 31. He does it again in Mark 12, 10 and Mark 12, 26, and he does it in Luke 6, 3. Everything about Jesus's life, all of his ministry is based off of the word of God. He's not quoting the most, uh, the newest rabbi of the day who's writing commentaries on the Old Testament scriptures. His whole basis for his life and his ministry is bound up in the word of God. This is what Tim Keller says concerning Jesus and the scriptures. 
Keller says, and I quote, when you prick Jesus Christ, when you stab Jesus Christ, he literally bled Scripture. He knew the Scripture so well. He thought about the Scripture so pervasively. It so saturated and permeated his whole being and his imagination and his feelings and his will and his knowledge that it shaped him instinctively. The Scripture shaped every part of him. His nobility, his courage, his peace, his faith, all happened because he was saturated with Scripture. Close quote. Now, I know what you may be thinking. It's Jesus we're talking about. Of course he knew the Scriptures. It's like being James, the half-brother of Jesus. Like, you know he's not the one who broke something in Mary and Joseph's house. Like, you know that he is the perfect one. All sarcasm aside, Jesus is part of the Trinitarian God who inspired the writing of the Scriptures after all. But when we see Jesus remembering and fulfilling the scriptures, we see a pattern for us to follow. Namely, knowing scriptures is what anchors us and gives us the deep roots necessary to withstand the sufferings of life. Jesus says, I thirst to fulfill Psalm 69, 21. Not only because it needed to be fulfilled, but because he was so saturated with Scripture that it helped him even in his moment of suffering. When he says, I thirst, it helps ground him and provide an anchor that what he's experiencing and what he's going to going through was prophesied and foretold. And so if he will hold on, he knows on the back end, there's the promise of the resurrection. There's the promise of vindication. There's the promise of people being given to him by the father. But he has to remember in the moment, even when he says, I thirst that he is caught up in the true story of how the scriptures are unfolding. And it's the same for us. We need the scriptures to serve as an anchor and give us the deep roots necessary to withstand suffering when it visits us. Granted, none of us in here, let me just ease your burden, will have to recall scripture as a fulfillment of prophecy concerning our life and death. You're not going to have to recall Scripture to remember all that was prophesied about your life and death, but you will need to recall Scripture when suffering to remember the grand story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, to understand where we fit in this grand narrative and to be reminded of where all of history is heading. If you're going to suffer well, you have to be anchored in the scriptures and you have to be able to recall the full scope of what is happening across the cosmos and where we fit in in this moment. We will also need to recall scripture to remind ourselves of the promises and truths of the gospel when suffering comes into our life. Much like Jesus, we're not going to stumble into knowing scripture well when the suffering begins. We are going to have to do the hard work of knowing the scripture now before we're visited by suffering in the first place. And God knew we would need the scriptures. So over and over and over again in the scriptures, he points to the need to know them, to have them worked into the fiber of our being. And so throughout the Bible, God over and over and over again highlights the necessity of knowing the word for a healthy believer to suffer well. This is what he says in just a few of these spots. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 119, all of it. I'm not reading all 176 verses. Just read Psalm 119 when you've got a chance. If you want to see the primacy and the importance of the Word of God in a believer's life. And then in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, Paul says to Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And over and over and over again, from Genesis to Revelation, the Scriptures testify to the need for the believer to know the truths of the scriptures. If you were to ask my wife, and she's in with the little baby, so you can ask her after, if I were a self-identified handyman, she would say no. I'm terrible at all things handy. Don't ever, well, you can. If it's really simple, I'll come help you build a swing set. But here's one thing I know, even in my limited handyman abilities. If a house or a building, or any structure is going to have integrity, is going to be able to stand, it needs to have a solid foundation. The foundation has to be intact. It has to be solid for the building to have a chance. But when do you put the foundation down? At the end of the building? Halfway through building the house? Is that when you pour your foundation, or do you pour the foundation at the very beginning? You pour the foundation at the very beginning, long before the walls go up, long before the furniture comes in, long before you spend your first night in your new house or move into your new office space. The foundation is the first thing to be laid. And so it is with us as believers that the first thing that has to be of primary importance for us is to lay a foundation of being grounded in and knowing the scriptures. But how do you know how good the foundation that's been poured or laid is? You don't know how good the foundation that you're on is until the weight of the house sits on the foundation. You don't know how good your foundation is until you move everything into the office building or into your home and the full weight of your life sits on that foundation. Then you begin to understand exactly how strong the foundation is. And it won't take long if the foundation's not good for cracks to appear. It won't take long for you to realize that the foundation you thought was good wasn't as good as you anticipated when the full weight of your life sits on it. And so it is with us as believers. If we think that there's a more sure foundation outside of the scriptures, then when we set the full weight of our life on a foundation other than the scriptures, it will not take long for the cracks to appear. It will not take long for the weight of our life to begin to crush the foundation we're building on. 
it will not take long for us to realize that our hope in suffering, the foundation of our lives, is going to betray us. That's why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say the foolish man builds his house on the sand and the waves beat and the waves crash and the house falls down, but the wise man builds his house on the rock. Doesn't escape the storm. The storm comes, the waves beat, the wind blows, but the house stands. So it is with us and so it is when we hear Jesus say, I thirst. We hear and we see the importance of having the scripture be the firm foundation of our life. Because here's what we know about the word of God and the father it reveals and the savior it tells us about. If we will know the scriptures and we will see the heart of the father and we will trust in the finished work of the son, then the scriptures provide a firm foundation that our lives will stand on. Doesn't mean we escape the storm. Doesn't mean we escape getting battered. Doesn't mean that we escape having to go through really bad times. And it doesn't mean we escape suffering. But it does mean that that foundation built on the word will never betray us. It is the only sure foundation for the believer to build their life on. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we love the scriptures? Are we committed to being in the scriptures? Are we committing scripture to memory? Are we building our life on a sure foundation of the word of God? And that is the challenge from Jesus' words for us tonight. But there's also a call in there to trust that Jesus became like us through his suffering. In Genesis 3.15, God promises, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then in Deuteronomy 18.17-18, Moses says, And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Isaiah 9, 6 prophesies, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 points to the suffering servant of God who would come to bear our griefs, carry our sorrows, and be pierced for our transgressions. The overall arc of the Old Testament points to the truth that our Messiah, our Savior, would be human. He would be fully human and fully God. And if we're honest, we have no problem viewing Jesus in the fullness of his divinity. But we struggle to see Jesus as fully human. We know our own weakness. We know our own frailty. We know our own susceptibility to sin. And if we linger, we think, too long on the humanity of Jesus, we begin to think, maybe, maybe he was too much like me. Maybe he slipped. And so we... We have this kind of in and out relationship with the humanity of Jesus where we just fail to really see him as fully human. But all of the Old Testament says he's going to come. Your Messiah, your Savior, the Son of Man, the Son of David is going to come and he's going to be fully human. So when we hear Jesus confess his thirst from the cross, we hear an invitation to see him as fully human. After all, God the Father has never experienced thirst 
Neither have the angels known the need for cracked lips and a parched throat to be comforted by a drink. Here we see Jesus in his humanity feeling this most basic need that we have all felt, I would dare say, at some point today. If we're going to see Jesus as fully human, here's the best place to start. Jesus got thirsty. I mean, think about that. Think about all that you know about Jesus, all that we sing about Jesus, and then think that he knows what it's like to be thirsty. It doesn't diminish the glory of his divinity, but it makes him accessible as one who can identify with your sufferings. If we're honest, the more we struggle to see Jesus this way as fully human, as one who would actually thirst, the more we find it difficult to come to him in our times of suffering. And even though we know the right things to say, we often feel in our hearts that Jesus cannot identify with us in our humanity, in our frailty, in our thirst, and in our struggles. We don't see how Jesus, fully God and fully man, can sympathize with us. But he can. And the author of Hebrews bends over backwards to make this point in the letter that he writes. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children, meaning us, share in flesh and blood, he meaning Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus suffered when tempted. Therefore, he is able to help those who are being tempted, which means Jesus can help you when you are tempted. Jesus didn't merely become human because he needed to die on the cross. He became human so that in dying on the cross and in rising from the dead and in becoming like us in every way except without sin, we would have one that we would run to in our temptation and in our suffering and in our struggles. We would have a God who we would know has drawn near to us and become like us and can identify with us. Jesus becoming human was an open invitation post-cross, post-resurrection. Now while he's ascended, it's an invitation for us in all of our frailty and all of our weakness to go to a God who would understand and identify and know where we are coming from. No other religion, no other worldview, no other system of belief offers this. Only Christ, the one who was fully God and fully man, who was tempted and suffered, is able to help those who are being tempted. And again, in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, the writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time 
of need. Do you hear what the writer of Hebrews is saying about the humanity of Jesus for us today? He is inviting us in. The humanity of Jesus is what gives us confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Fully God, fully man, living, dying, rising again, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he rose in human body and in human form so that we would never wonder about his, his ability to identify with us. It doesn't matter in the end if you know all the scriptures by heart. If you don't trust that Christ is able to identify with you, you will always keep him at an arm's length while enduring suffering. So we want to know the scriptures. We want the scriptures to be the foundation of our life so that when suffering comes, we have an anchor for our souls. We have deep roots in our faith. But knowing the scriptures is meant to push us to going to the, to the Savior who they reveal. And if you don't see Jesus as fully human, you'll know all the scriptures and you'll become cold and calculating in how you use the scriptures to throw in God's face his unloving, unmerciful, ungracious treatment of you. But if you know the scriptures and you see Jesus as fully human and fully God and you see Jesus as one who can sympathize and identify with you, then you'll use the scriptures as a means and a propellant to force you to run to the open arms of your Savior you'll find confidence to approach the throne of grace. When I was in seventh grade, I had to go to the University of North Carolina to have surgery done on my right ear. And we had gone down, I believe it was the first time we had gone down or maybe the second time. We were sitting in the waiting room at uh, the hospital there in Chapel Hill. And I glanced over to my right and I'm like, man, that guy looks familiar, like really familiar. And I got up and I like walked around and I sat beside my parents and I said, hey, is that Dante Calabria? Now, if you don't know who that is, he was a big time player for Carolina back in the mid 90s. I said, mom, dad, is that Dante Calabria? They both kind of looked and they're like, yeah, that's him. And I was like, all right, I want to meet him. And so they got ready to walk me back. I'm going to the waiting room to meet Dr. Pillsbury. Yes, that's his real name. And no, I did not poke him in the stomach. We're walking back to go to the waiting room for Dr. Pillsbury, and I'm like looking in the rooms, and the nurse is like, who are you looking for, honey? And I said, I just wanted to say hey to Dante Calabria if that wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> and so she's like, no, that's fine. And so she walks, knocks on the door, and she's like, hey, he just wants to say hey. So I say hey to Dante Calabria like we've been friends forever, and he signed a piece of paper that's still in a box somewhere at my house. We went on about our business. But here's the thing. Until that point, in that moment, Dante Calabria had been a larger-than-life person that I had only known through TV. And then I saw him in the waiting room where I'm waiting to have a talk with the doctor about surgery for my ear. Come to find out, Dante Calabria needed surgery to help clean out his sinuses. I say that to say, it, in that moment, I saw the humanity of a guy that I had only known through the TV screen. He was no different than me. He needed help. 
He needed to see a doctor. He needed surgery. How much greater should our recognition of the humanity of Jesus be as we are reading and understanding and knowing the scriptures? That we would look and we would go, there is a Savior who is like me, except he never sinned, and he can identify with me, and I can come to him, and I don't have to walk around ducking my head in and around the doors of a doctor's office trying to find him. He's sitting on the throne patiently waiting for me to come to him because he has told me that he will be able to identify with me and help me and give me grace and mercy and walk with me through my pains and through my sufferings and through the ups and downs of this life. How much greater should our willingness to engage with Jesus as one who was fully God and fully man be as we read and see his life unfold through the scriptures? At the end of the day, suffering is going to pay a visit to each of us. Suffering in a fallen world is no respecter of persons. The bitterness of suffering is tasted by both believer and non-believer. The difference for us as those who follow Christ is that we don't waste our suffering. Christ did not waste his suffering on the cross. Christ leveraged his suffering to accomplish the greatest thing that needed to be accomplished in the history of the world, namely our salvation and being restored to the Father. Jesus didn't waste his suffering, and so we, following his example, don't want to waste ours. Rather, we want to allow the suffering that's in our lives, either currently, maybe it's happened in the past, or you're headed towards suffering. It's going to find you at one point or another, and what we want to do is we want to allow the suffering in our lives to serve as a conduit for showcasing and extolling the glories of God while also understanding they are working out in us something far greater than we could imagine. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, or you could insert suffering there, for this light momentary suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says we don't lose heart. These light and momentary sufferings, we want to leverage and maximize them for the glory of God and the good of our own souls because we realize they are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. Any suffering in this life will soon pass. So we don't look at our bodies because they are wasting away. They are in the process of decay and death. So we look to the internal. We look to the eternal. We look to the work that God is doing in our hearts and in our souls to prepare us for standing in an eternal weight of glory that when experienced will cause every suffering we look back on to be seen for what it really was, light and momentary. It feels crushing now in our humanity. But there is the promise that when we are in our redeemed state, when we have taken on our redeemed humanity, all of the suffering will be light. All the suffering we look back on will be seen as light and momentary. John Piper, with this verse in view, says the following. It's where I want to end our time together today. This is Piper, and I quote, 
Not only is all of your affliction momentary, not only is all of your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you've got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't say that's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you in eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart, but take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for. What does Piper say we have to do in order to not waste our suffering? Get alone with God, preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for. You don't just preach the word to your heart and you don't just preach the word to your mind. You preach the word to your mind until your heart becomes secure in the truths and the promises of the word. And then you step boldly into each day. You step boldly into each moment of suffering, knowing with a otherworldly confidence that you are new and that you are cared for. Jesus suffered and he didn't waste it. He knew the scriptures, and he knew what it was to suffer as one who was fully man. So would it be true for us that we would know the scriptures? We're all already well acquainted, I would imagine, with what it means to suffer as men and women living in a fallen world. When we get alone, when we preach the truth of the word to ourselves until our minds are settled and our hearts are secure, and then would we step forward in faith and boldly say that our suffering is not meaningless? but it is doing something both for the glory of God here and now and for our good both now and in the life to come. Let's pray.